to the responsibility to protect. Word kill. All societies are potentially vulnerable. Possibly crimes. Timely and appropriate action. Welcome to Expert Voices on Atrocity Prevention by the Global Center for the Responsibility to Protect. I'm Jacqueline Streifeld-Hall, Research Director at the Global Center. This podcast features one-on-one conversations with practitioners from the fields of human rights, conflict prevention, and atrocity prevention. These conversations will give us a glimpse of the personal and professional side of how practitioners approach human rights protection and atrocity prevention, allowing us to explore challenges, identify best practices, and share lessons learned on how we can protect populations more effectively. Today I'm joined by Adrian Lapar, Director of Watchlist on Children in Armed Conflict. Adrian has previously worked with UNHCR and the UN Mission in South Sudan, as well as Nonviolent Peace Force and Human Rights Watch. Thank you for joining us today, Adrian. Thanks for having me. This year, the Secretary General's report on R2P is on the impact of atrocities on children and youth, as well as their role in atrocity prevention. Since Watchlist works on issues very closely related to atrocity prevention in the children in armed conflict space, we thought this would be the perfect time to chat with you. So could you share a little about Watchlist is and how the organization operates? Sure, thanks. So Watchlist on Children in Armed Conflict is a network of human rights and humanitarian organizations uh, that works to protect the rights of children affected by armed conflicts around the world. Uh, We currently have 14 member organizations, uh, including the Global Center for R2P, who we work with uh, to collect and disseminate information on grave violations and other abuses against children in countries affected by war uh, in order to influence international level policymakers to develop policies and programs to effectively protect children. Uh, We very strongly believe that by strengthening international institutions like the United Nations and promoting international laws and norms for the protection of civilians in armed conflict, and specifically for the protection of children in armed conflict, we can ensure their effectiveness and impact and increase the costs of non-compliance. Um, we believe that laws and norms must be implemented to be effective. Um, so Watchlist plays a role in translating New York-based initiatives into real progress for children affected by armed conflict. Adrian, I know you work directly on the UN's Children in Armed Conflict agenda. What is the history and purpose of the CAC agenda? So in the 1990s, uh, the UN General Assembly commissioned a study into the impacts of armed conflict on children. Uh, This two-year study, uh, which was led by Mozambique's former education minister, Grasa Michel, was presented to the General Assembly in 1996, and it was a real eye-opener for policymakers. Uh, It described uh, terrible atrocities against children, uh, the forced recruitment and use of children as soldiers and in other military support roles, their use as sexual slaves, senseless attacks that resulted in deaths and long-lasting injuries, uh, attacks on schools and hospitals, abductions, uh, and the denial of access to humanitarian assistance. Uh, This really opened the eyes of policymakers, as I said, and led to the adoption of General Assembly Resolution 5177 in December 1996, which established the UN's Children Armed Conflict Mandate uh, and called for the appointment of a special representative of the Secretary General on this issue. Uh, It's really timely that we're talking about this uh, today, actually. Uh, It's the uh, 25th anniversary year of the mandate. And since its establishment, it's expanded and evolved to become one of the most significant, dynamic, and I'd say broadly supported multilateral initiatives within the UN system. Uh, It's also expanded into the work of the Security Council, 
which had its first resolution on children armed conflict in 1999, uh, placing the children armed conflict issue on its agenda as a matter of international peace and security. Uh, and to date, the Council's adopted 13 thematic resolutions on children armed conflict, or CAC as it's commonly known. Uh, one of the very, um, I think, pivotal resolutions uh, from the Security Council uh, was Resolution 1612, which was adopted in 2005. Um, that resolution established the UN's Monitoring and Reporting Mechanism, or MRM as it's known, uh, which is a global monitoring system uh, to collect uh, data on grave violations against children in situations of armed conflict uh, and channel reports on that information uh, through the Secretary General's Special Representative's Office um, to uh, various parts of the UN system, including the Security Council. Uh, Resolution 1612 also established the Security Council Working Group on Children Armed Conflict, uh, which is a subsidiary body, body of the Council, uh, and it's one of the most active subsidiary bodies of the Council uh, that meets regularly to discuss the situation of children armed conflict uh, in, in different countries around the world and provide recommendations for parties to conflict, uh, governments, donors, uh, and other actors on ending and preventing grave violations against children. You just mentioned the six grave violations against children, which at times are warning signs of atrocities and in many cases may constitute atrocities themselves. How are the six grave violations determined? Yeah, so the six grave violations against children uh, were identified um, first in that uh, uh, pivotal Grassa Michelle report that I mentioned, uh, where she, uh, over the course of two years, studied the impacts of armed conflict on children, um, and then later uh, identified as well by the Security Council. And those are the six grave violations that the Security Council continues to look at in its work on the CAC agenda. Um, for those who might not be familiar, maybe I'll uh, mention the sixth grade violations include the recruitment and use of children in armed conflict, killing and maiming of children, sexual violence against children, uh, attacks on schools and hospitals, abductions against children, and the denial of, denial of humanitarian access. And since you mentioned it, the CAC agenda is bolstered by a wide system of reporting within the UN, including the MRM, the SG's annual report and list, and the Security Council Working Group on Children and Armed Conflict. Could you shed some light on how these processes either work together to enhance child protection or overlap? And are there any shortcomings in the process? Right. So as I mentioned, uh, with its resolution 1612, the Security Council established the uh, UN's monitoring reporting mechanism, the MRM, uh, which is this unique global monitoring system for collecting and verifying information on the sixth grade violations against children armed conflict. Uh, that information is collected directly by the UN and its partners on the ground, um, including civil society organizations in countries affected by armed conflict. And then it's channeled through the Office of the Special Representative of the Secretary General for Children in Armed Conflict, uh, which produces a series of reports each year. Uh, these include annual reports to the General Assembly and to the UN Human Rights Council in Geneva, as well as the Secretary General's annual report to the Security Council on Children in Armed Conflict, uh, which we're expecting uh, in late June or early July of this year. Um, the Office of the Special Representative also produces a series of country-specific reports on the situation of children in armed conflict, which are presented to the Security Council's working group on children in armed conflict. And that working group then deliberates upon them and develops a series of recommendations, as I mentioned, for parties to conflict, for governments that are engaged, 
uh, for example, in peace processes or ceasefire agreements, uh, the World Bank and other donors uh, to address uh, end and prevent grave violations. Um, so as you said, it's a complex uh, ecosystem with many actors involved, uh, a variety of reports and systems for um, uh, channeling that information. Um, there's also uh, actors that are engaged um, outside of this, this formal system, uh, such as the Group of Friends of Children in Armed Conflict, uh, which is uh, currently chaired by Canada uh, in New York. Uh, and over the years, there's also been the development of country-specific or regional groups of friends uh, in many of the countries that are affected by armed conflict. Um, and they also um, engage on, uh, for example, on channeling those conclusions of the country of the Security Council Working Group on Children on Conflict uh, at the country level, meeting with the local government, with local embassies uh, to promote the uh, dissemination of those conclusions and support their implementation. Uh, so there's a number of actors that are involved in this ecosystem um, and promoting um, uh, different tools for protecting children on conflict. Um, the, uh, I want to say a little bit more also about the Secretary General's annual report uh, because it's such a unique and powerful tool within the, the CAC agenda. Um, the Secretary General's annual report currently includes information on 20 countries that are affected by armed conflict, as well as the Lake Chad Basin region. Uh, and in its annexes, the Secretary General includes a list of parties to conflict who have committed a pattern of grave violations against children. And this has commonly become known as the Secretary General's list of shame because no party to conflict wants to be included on this list. Uh, and that is really powerful because it creates incentive for parties to do what it takes to get off the list. Uh, so what does it take to get off the list? Um, well, in 2010, the Secretary General at the time set out a list of specific criteria uh, for steps that parties to conflict that are listed have to take to get off. Um, these include the signing and implementation of an action plan to end and prevent grave violations for which a party is listed, and then going a full rep reporting period or a full year without committing any new violations. Um, but in recent years, we've seen some parties, uh, some perpetrators um, evading inclusion on the Secretary General's list or being prematurely delisted, uh, despite evidence that they have continued to commit grave violations. Uh, and we are very concerned about this, we as Watchlist, uh, and we've warned that it threatens to undermine the list's credibility and weaken its strength as a tool for promoting accountability and compliance with international law. Um, we believe that all perpetrators of grave violations need to be held to the same standard, regardless of who they or their friends are. Uh, parties should be included in the Secretary General's list for one reason alone, and that's committing a pattern of documented UN-verified um, evidence that they've committed grave violations against children. Another important tool um, within the Secretary General's annual report on children in armed conflict is the inclusion of information about uh, so-called situations of concern, which are new emerging situations of armed conflict where there's credible information that the effective protection of children is of grave concern. Um, there might not be sufficient evidence um, of the responsibility of particular parties uh, to list parties in the Secretary General's annexes, but still enough information to uh, raise the attention of the Security Council to these situations. Um, and over the years, Watchlist has called for the early inclusion of situations of concern in the report 
uh, as an effective way to strengthen uh, conflict prevention, early warning, and early action. Um, as, as you mentioned, you know, the abuse of children is symptomatic of more complex issues within a society at large, uh, including the breakdown of institutions and security. Uh, so in this sense, we believe that the inclusion of situations of concern is a real opportunity to draw the Security Council's attention to emerging situations where grave violations are happening. Um, Watchlist since 2017 has published an annual policy note where we make recommendations uh, to the Secretary General for the listing of perpetrators who we believe have committed a pattern of grave violations. Uh, but we also make recommendations for country situations that we think should be included in the report as situations of concern. Uh, since we've published that report um, starting in 2017, we've made recommendations each year for the inclusion of the situation in Ukraine, um, previously due to the, the situation in eastern Ukraine. And this year, we've made further recommendations uh, given the escalation of hostilities in the country. Uh, so with the Secretary General's report on children armed conflict coming in the, in the next few weeks, um, we really are um, pushing for the Secretary General to include information on the situation in Ukraine, but also a number of other country situations, such as Ethiopia, Mozambique, and Niger. Uh, we believe that uh, the situation of children in these countries has been of grave concern for several years, and it's a pivotal opportunity for the Secretary General to draw attention to the situation of, armed, of children in armed conflict, uh, and then uh, this could lead to further actions to address those, those violations. In terms of the MRM and the so-called list of shame, what is the impact of being a perpetrator that is listed and monitored year after year? Is there any form of accountability for those perpetrators? It's important to note that the monitoring reporting mechanism uh, is uh, a monitoring system. It helps to identify perpetrators, uh, but it's, it's a first step towards accountability when the Secretary General names and shames parties to conflict in the annexes of his report. Uh, and then uh, further steps need to be taken by uh, policymakers to ensure that those listed parties are actually held accountable. Um, so I, I think we need to be clear that uh, it's not simply enough uh, just for the monitoring reporting mechanism to do its important work and collect that information, uh, channel that through the council uh, and the secretary general to name and shame those perpetrators. Uh, there needs to be um, a concrete follow-up uh, and repercussions for the actions of, of um, persistent perpetrators of grave violations. We've already touched on this a little, but um, I know there have been a lot of concerns about the list in the past in terms of double standards and discrepancies, and I was wondering if you could talk a little bit more about that. So as I've mentioned, the Secretary General's annual report and its annex list of perpetrators uh, are really powerful tools when they're applied evenly across all parties to conflict, whether they're governments, non-state armed groups, international coalitions, or even UN peacekeepers. Uh, they can exert pressure on those parties once they're listed to end and prevent violations in order to get off the list. Uh, but in some cases, due to political pressure, certain parties have avoided being listed. And we believe that this undermines the power of the list and its, uh, its ability to influence parties to conflict and prevent violations. Uh, among uh, some of the examples of this double standard that we've seen um, have been uh, the, the Secretary General's failure over the years uh, to list uh, Israeli forces for 
violations. Um, they've never been listed, although they've been included in the Secretary General's annual report. In a particularly um, uh, dire example, uh, in 2016, Secretary General Ban Ki-moon listed the Saudi-led coalition for killing and maiming children and attacks on schools and hospitals in Yemen. Uh, yet a few weeks later, he retracted that, uh, that decision. Um, and later it was reported in the press that this was due to threats uh, from, the, from Saudi Arabia to withdraw UN funding. Uh, after, uh, after his term, um, Ban Ki-moon uh, was quoted in the press saying that uh, this was one of the most uh, difficult political decisions of his, of his term. Um, but uh, I think it points to uh, a really unjust um, uh, move by Saudi Arabia and one that we've seen uh, from other parties to conflict, uh, in including Israeli government forces uh, and some of their allies to put pressure on the Secretary General to avoid being listed uh, in the annual report. Um, subsequently, in 2017, Secretary General Antonio Guterres did list the Saudi-led coalition in his report for killing and maiming children and attacks on schools and hospitals. Um, yet over the years, um, we've also seen um, changes in how that list has, uh, has uh, depicted uh, the, the actions of, of Saudi Arabia. So for example, since 2017, the list has been split uh, into two sections, section A and B for parties to conflict that have put in place measures to protect children and those that have not. Uh, in, our, in the view of uh, Watchlist and many of its uh, um, member organizations, uh, we believe that there should be a single list uh, with all parties held to the same standards uh, for uh, grave violations against children. Um, and last year in 2021, uh, a group of uh, eminent persons who are experts on children armed conflict um, did an independent study looking at the last 10 years of the Secretary General's annual reports on children on conflict from 2010 to 2020. Uh, and they systematically reviewed um, the information in the Secretary General's annual reports with the, the lists. Uh, and they found uh, a staggering number of inconsistencies as well as some glaring omissions uh, in the list. Uh, cases in which there were 10, 20, or even 100 grave violations documented uh, by a single party to the conflict uh, in a year, and yet that party did not appear in the Secretary General's list. Um, so this kind of double standard um, really undermines the power of the list. Uh, and so year after year, watch list and its partner organizations um, continues to call on the Secretary General to resist any um, political pressures uh, from member states. Uh, and to apply the 2010 standards, uh, the 2010 criteria, excuse me, across uh, all conflicts and across all parties to conflict uh, to ensure that um, all parties, whether they're governments, non-state armed groups, coalitions, peacekeepers, uh, that they're held to the same standards. Uh, this also applies in situations of delisting of parties uh, where we believe parties should be uh, delisted according to that 2010 criteria being that they go a full year without any new violations and that they fully implement an action plan with the UN. Um, this, uh, this was something we saw in 2020 with the premature delisting of the Saudi-led coalition for killing and maiming children, 
despite the fact that it uh, was responsible for nearly 200 violations that year, and also uh, the delisting of the Tatma Dow in Myanmar for recruitment and use of children, uh, also despite uh, over 200 uh, cases of recruitment and use. Uh, we believe that this further emboldens parties um, uh, if they haven't uh, fully carried out their commitments to end and prevent violations, uh, and they should remain on the list until they've completed all the criteria. One of the most important things for us to keep in mind is what is the impact of these mechanisms? Um, particularly, what is the impact of the CAC agenda, the MRM, and the list of shame for populations on the ground at risk of grave violations? Right. So as I mentioned uh, earlier, um, the UN's CAC mandate has expanded over the past 25 years since its establishment, uh, and it's become um, one of the most dynamic and broadly supportive multilateral initiatives, uh, one, something that's uh, no small feat in today's increasingly polarized world. Um, and it's had real impact for um, populations on the ground. Uh, it's led to the signing of more than 35 action plans between the UN and parties to conflict um, in, in several countries where children have been impacted by grave violations. Uh, and in 2020, the government of South Sudan became the first uh, to sign a comprehensive action plan addressing all six grave violations against children. Uh, and I know that this is something that the Office of the Special Representative of the Secretary General for Children in Armed Conflict is uh, really pushing to try to get more comprehensive action plans and prevention plans uh, to deal with grave violations before they start. Um, over the years, uh, 13 parties to conflict have fully complied with their commitments, leading to their delisting from the Secretary General's annual report based on those criteria that I talked about earlier. Um, there's also been parties that have been delisted after they demobilized and ceased to exist. Um, including in countries that went through peace processes, such as Colombia, Nepal, uh, or Sri Lanka. Um, and after, uh, also, I should mention, over the past 20 years, the UN supported the release of an estimated 170,000 children from armed forces and armed groups. Uh, so really, we can see a lot of uh, very concrete impacts uh, that this agenda has had. Um, and even we see this um, coming into other uh, areas of the, the UN's work. Uh, for example, um, the Security Council uh, more regularly mainstreams uh, the protection of children in situations of armed conflict across its work um, in both armed conflict situations, but also in post-conflict reconstruction. Uh, so there's uh, dedicated child protection mandates in several peacekeeping missions and also in special political missions. Um, and in some limited cases, there's been uh, an employment of sanctions and other targeted measures against individuals or parties that are responsible for committing grave violations against children. And in terms of the action plans and protection plans you mentioned, what sort of follow-up and monitoring is there in terms of ensuring implementation? Right. So uh, I talked a little bit earlier about this kind of complex ecosystem that exists within the UN Children on Conflict uh, agenda. Uh, and that's an important part of the, uh, the implementation and the, specifically the follow-up on these action plans. So um, UN country teams who are there, you know, in the day-to-day -day engaging with, uh, with the local governments, but they also engage with, um, they have the mandate to engage with uh, all parties to conflict, including non-state armed groups, uh, to end and prevent uh, grave violations. Uh, they're the ones who start that engagement with parties to conflict. Uh, to develop commitments um, that, that can then be framed in an action plan. 
And then uh, the special representative of the Secretary General for Children Armed Conflict uh, is generally the representative that would sign an action plan with, uh, with those parties. Um, and then the UN country teams, as I said, uh, continue the day-to-day to engage, uh, to familiarize um, actors about the commitments under the action plan to provide capacity building, uh, for example, to security forces um, and make those, uh, those commitments within that action plan uh, a reality. Um, also, there's the, uh, in some cases, local groups of friends, um, which are uh, other member states that have uh, a stated commitment to supporting the children on conflict agenda, uh, and they may meet um, with um, the local government, for example, to um, further support the implementation of the action plan, um, partly through political pressure, but also potentially through um, uh, financial support in, in some cases for capacity building, strengthening rule of law uh, and governance. So um, those are a couple of the actors that, that are involved there. In some cases, there may be local groups of friends that are established by other countries that uh, support the children armed conflict agenda. Uh, these countries will uh, meet at the local level to support uh, the implementation of the action plan to follow up on country-specific conclusions of the Security Council Working Group on CAC, um, and they can uh, put political pressure on local actors to implement their action plan, and they can also provide other forms of support. Um, civil society also plays an important role um, through advocacy, um, also through capacity building, and um, following up on, on parties' commitments. Um, and I also should mention outside of the formal action plans and um, uh, the kind of UN um, structure that we have here, uh, there's also uh, a various sets of voluntary political commitments that governments can take uh, to protect children armed conflict. Um, these include the, the Paris principles and commitments, uh, which speak about the recruitment and use of children armed conflict uh, and um, uh, protecting children um, in, in that context. Uh, the Vancouver Principles, uh, which look at how uh, the role of peacekeeping in uh, preventing the recruitment and use of children. Uh, and then the Safe Schools Declaration, which is a, a political commitment of governments to protect schools uh, from attack and also uh, to refrain from using schools militarily, which can then, um, unfortunately, the military use of schools uh, also uh, can put students, teachers, and uh, and school buildings in harm. When you were discussing earlier the situations of concern, you mentioned Ukraine, which is obviously a huge global headline right now, as well as Ethiopia. And I think what's interesting is that a lot of these cases are obviously atrocity cases. Um, you know, as you noted at the beginning, the Global Center is a member of Watchlist Network, and there are many reasons for that. Uh, so I'm wondering, Adrian, as a child rights advocate, what do you think the atrocity prevention community should be doing more of to address unique risks faced by children? So uh, as you mentioned, and, and also I highlighted earlier, uh, the um, crimes against children are uh, really symptomatic of uh, uh, society at large and breakdown of uh, rule of law. Um, and they can be indicative of um, uh, other atrocities to come. Uh, so I think that the uh, collecting of information on grave violations and other abuses against children um, 
is uh, really important to uh, inform prevention and early warning systems uh, to prevent uh, uh, further atrocities from happening. Perhaps this is beyond uh, the atrocity prevention community, but also the um, accountability and justice for crimes against children, I think is something that uh, we need to continually strengthen uh, to deter future crimes from happening uh, and prevent future atrocities uh, in other um, armed conflict contexts. Um, the specific focus on crimes against children uh, is something that I think that the uh, international justice community um, can do better uh, to have the specific expertise on crimes against children, uh, child-friendly justice, um, to make sure uh, that crimes against just—excuse uh, me—to make sure that crimes against children are addressed um, and uh, to deter future crimes. What is the impact of the CAC agenda being framed largely as a peace and security issue by the UN, since it's largely based in UN Security Council and UN General Assembly initiatives, as opposed to a human rights issue? This is an issue I think that we, we face across many of the um, protection agendas uh, of, the, of the UN, uh, where there's a siloing between what's happening in New York political processes and uh, Geneva, and then also on the ground. Uh, but uh, child rights um, are really core to um, uh, the protection of children around conflict, uh, and I don't think that they're uh, that we can separate them really. So I, I do think that um, closing those silos uh, is is really key to addressing um, some of the the grave violations and abuses that we've talked about today, uh, and also to um, ensuring that children. Uh, are not just prote protected from those violations, but that they're able to um, fully uh, enjoy all of their rights, um, to live in uh, uh, peaceful societies, have access to um, education, basic services, uh, and the fulfillment of, of their, their full human rights uh, in order to lead to um, peaceful, prosperous societies. Uh, so I think that this um, there's been an increased recognition of this, of the kind of the uh, humanitarian development peace uh, nexus. Um, and I think also looking at, um, for example, investing in um, the reintegration of children formerly associated with armed forces and armed groups, uh, looking at children who have been recruited by armed forces and armed groups primarily as victims, uh, and ensuring that the uh, the adults who have recruited and used them in their ranks are the ones that are being held accountable uh, and brought to justice and that those children are not uh, being detained um, uh, and instead are getting the reintegration and other support services that they need. Um, so I think that uh, there's been increased recognition of this, uh, but that we still need to do better to make sure that the response is holistic and addressing uh, rights and protection together. If you'd like more information about the Global Center's work on R2P, mass atrocity prevention, or populations at risk of mass atrocities, visit our website at globalr2p.org and connect with us on Twitter and Facebook at GCR2P.